Hey Dreamer, how's it going? Today's interview is with Lauren Cobbs, who's a dear friend and entrepreneur. I do want to point out that we recorded the interview last year. So if you notice some of the things are not as updated or we don't mention a current event, it's because it was recorded last year in September. So without further ado, I want to introduce Lauren Cobbs. She is a passionate entrepreneur and founder of Create Agency, a marketing and communications firm that delivers a strategy expertise to external clients. It also houses the SC Melanin community and Culture Plus Cuisine, which are brands that curate unique content and experiences for diverse audiences. This is also where I met Lauren at an SD Melanin event the first time. Lauren is also passionate about helping brands tell their stories and creating spaces for underserved populations. Prior to becoming a full-time entrepreneur in January 2020, Lauren served her country as a U.S. diplomat to Mexico and Thailand. She received a degree in economics from Purdue University and a master's in public administration from Columbia University. Lauren speaks English, Spanish, and Arabic. She has traveled over 30 countries. She loves law and order and spending time with her six nephews. Welcome to the Hey Dreamer podcast, a show created to inspire you to design your dream life and business. This is your host and dream maker, Jesse Medina. Let's get together each week to hear the stories of those that are making their dreams a reality. And by those, I mean all types of people of different backgrounds because representation matters. And because no matter where you came from or what you look like, I honestly believe you can defy stereotypes, break glass ceilings, and create Create a life that you love. If I did it, you can do it too. So are you ready to get dreaming with me? Let's go. Hi, Lauren. How is it going? Good. How are you, Jesse? Doing well. Welcome to Famix Podcast. I'm so excited to have you. I don't know why we didn't have you before. I think it's because you travel a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for this. Excited. So I want to share with the audience that I first met you because you are the founder of SD Melanin. And I was literally walking downtown on the street with my friend. And she was like, what? I've never seen so many black people in San Diego, like all together. And she's like, let's check this out. And we literally just like, I think we talked to you. And then you're like, yeah, go ahead, come in. And we just like went in and like, we just like loved it. And then she was like, oh my gosh, I'm in love. And then after that, we stayed in touch and we kind of just started, did a couple things together. So it was kind of like, we literally stumbled upon you and what you're doing. So why don't you share with us a little bit more about what you do and also what inspired you to start SD Melanin? Yeah, absolutely. So I am the founder of SD Melanin. SD Melanin is a community. Um, it, so it's kind of interesting because we're a company that is really focused on curating experiences and content for young professionals of color. But we're more than a company because we're really a community, uh, as you kind of spoke to. Definitely a community. Yeah. And, and one of the biggest that I've seen in San Diego, for sure. Yeah, it's, it's kind of, it it's been really interesting to see how the community has grown and see how from we started in 2017 to now, we have over 10,000, I call them community members. Like, wow. It's not a very cool name, community members. I got to work on that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's nice. Like people, people have met and gotten married at our events and experiences uh, wow yeah. I didn't know that 
Yeah, they've started businesses with people they've met, all sorts of hookups, breakups. <laughs> all the drama. <laughs> That's how you know you're really a family. <laughs> <laughs> but it's been great. It's been really cool to start that and see it grow. How did you come up with the idea? Honestly, I was living in TJ at the time. But, you know, Tijuana is so close to San Diego. Mm-hmm. I was spending a good amount of time in San Diego. And it was really hard because I'm from Ohio. So, and I moved from DC. Prior to that, I was in New York City. So I come from spaces that have very vibrant, diverse, mm-hmm. black and brown communities. And you can kind of just really do go anywhere and see someone who looked like you or who you all see all kinds of people instead of one type. <laughs> Absolutely. And then when I got to San Diego, I was just like, oh, this is a little different than what I'm used to. Uh, The Black population is smaller than obviously DC and New York. And also not just, it wasn't just that it was a smaller Black population. It was more so that there just weren't as many people investing in experiences for that population. And there weren't as many opportunities to go out and see just like all types of people kicking it. Mm-hmm. So that's why I started it. Cause I was just, I was new to the area. And so I didn't have a network and I mm-hmm. very much interested in meeting people. And I thought, Oh, there has to be like, if I feel like this, there has to be other people who feel like this. So you also have a marketing company. Did you have your company before you started SC Melanin or it kind of happened at the same time? So technically it's, it's kind of interesting. It kind of all happened at the same time. So technically, yes, because I thought initially when I founded SC Melanin, we founded it with an umbrella company that was to do events and marketing consulting. Uh, but SC Melanin kind of grew so quickly that all of our capacity was pretty much committed to building that brand, marketing it. And we also have a sister brand called Culture Plus Cuisine. So mm-hmm. all of all of our capacity was pretty much dedicated to our in-house brands and we didn't have a lot of space to do external consulting. But thanks to 2020, that's changed. And over the years, we did smaller projects and we would do some consulting services. But in 2020, we because we couldn't do as many live events, we were able to start picking up more clients on the consulting side. I love that you mentioned 2020. <laughs> well, I, I think I love it or I think I'm like, uh, don't remind me, it's 2020. <laughs> Tell me about this year. What has it been like for you? Uh, <laughs> 2020 has honestly, it feels like the ocean and like a wave. And a good friend of mine, uh, her mom says kind of something to the effect of like a wave, you know, there are high parts where you're like, you're riding high and there are parts where it crashes and you're feeling a little low, but you can always expect, you know, the tide to come in, the tide to go out and the cycle to continue. So I I genuinely feel that 2020, there's been some really, really high, high points. And there's been some really, really low ones where I struggled a lot. I mean, having an event production company and you can't do events. That's really hard. And I quit my full-time job. I used to be a U.S. diplomat, which is why I was in Mexico. So I I left the State Department in January. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to do this full-time, really commit to the full-time entrepreneur life. And then two short months later, you know, we were shut down and we've honestly... Oh, so you had just left that. So tell me a little bit about that. How did you get into that? 
because I didn't even know before that you had gone to Mexico and worked there. Yeah, so I've been an avid. It sounds super cheesy, but I really feel like I'm a global citizen. Yes, <laughs> yes, sister, I say the same thing <laughs> all the time. <laughs> Little cliche, but I love it. It's okay, but I, um, like, I've lived in South Africa, I've lived in Thailand, I lived in Mexico, uh, and then I've traveled extensively just uh, almost to all continents and tons of countries, like, I don't know, between 20 and 30, maybe 40. I'm going to lose count. <laughs> now 2020 comes, and it also affects that part of you, right? <laughs> like, so it's funny. I was actually overseas when the pandemic hit. Like, I was overseas, and my mom and my sister kept being like, you need to get home. Like, this is getting crazy. And I'm like, it's fine where I'm at. I'm good. Oh my God. <laughs> and uh, I've... I I was doing, um, I traveled solo extensively. Mm -hmm. so I spent a month, uh, it was like my celebration, left the State Department. I'm a full-time entrepreneur. It was my celebration trip. And so <laughs> I spent it in Trinidad, Curacao. Wow, girl. <laughs> Where was my invite? <laughs> it was solo. It was like you finally- It was so timely though, because at least you got it out of your system, right? For a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yes, like it was great you time. deposited in your traveling bank for a little bit man because I, I also went to the dr in puerto rico and it was i i flew back to the states on march 14th and i wow. yeah and i was planning to kind of co-locate in cali in texas because i just like i like texas and so i flew back home to Cincinnati because I thought like I was gonna I thought it was gonna be like two weeks and we had a family vacation planned the following week so I said okay great I'll go back home do the family vacation and then like a week or two or whatever like this will blow over um, yeah and I'll move and I think I was in denial for a time too like oh yeah sure we'll just close down for a little bit <laughs> this would you know yeah I think we wouldn't expect and because we've had other other diseases that have come and gone and, and it didn't affect maybe the U.S. as much, even though we were watching it in, in the world news. I think I thought it was going to be like that. You know, I thought it the U.S. I think we have this false sense of security or we used to before 2020 that the U.S. was kind of untouchable when it comes to anything, right? Like, oh, well, if it gets to us, we'll handle it. And I think the pandemic was kind of like an awakening. <laughs> we're not untouchable. I mean, I have so many thoughts on this. Uh, <laughs> Please share. I want to hear. We want to hear um, so I used to work for the federal government, right? Um, and I worked for them for about five years. And prior to that, I was a foreign affairs fellow uh, with the State Department. So I've been associated with the State Department for like seven years at this point. I got my master's from Columbia and public policy. Wow. And so... I've studied this and then I also saw like the first hand of you and I kind of knew when the election after the election I knew that my time at the State Department would be super limited because I kind of started to see uh, like internal changes and shifts that was like this does not seem kosher. I remember having a conversation with a it wasn't even a conversation it was an open forum one of the senior State Department officials came to Tijuana and we were having this discussion and it was around the time that the Muslim ban like was being talked about and there was like there was a lot of talk from the administration about that bullshit. Sorry if we can't. Yeah, no, okay. you, you can. Go ahead. And so I asked, I remember sitting in this uh, like open forum meeting and I asked because at the time I'm thinking like, well, obviously we're not going to do something that 
violate people's rights, like just banning someone on the basis of their religion. And so I like, oh, naive me asked like, well, clearly we're not going to implement this policy. Like there's no way it's going to happen, right? Like, yeah. Right. I was like, clearly we can't do this because it, it seems pretty uh, unconstitutional, like, right? Yeah. Uh, advisor said, we implement the president's policy policies until a court tells us otherwise. And at that moment, I literally was like, oh, okay, you'll be leaving. This isn't a long-term career option mm-hmm. because I don't need to violate my own moral codes and obligations for a job. And then there were other things that came up where we would have internal meetings about changes or shifts in how we do the work. And I would ask, well, are you guys going to, like, I would ask management, are you guys going to follow up with the email, like, to confirm this? And they were just like, no. And I'm like, I know whenever, like, if you don't want to put something in writing, it's because it's, there's a problem there. And so I guess I, and I'm from Ohio, right? Like it's not Cali. It's not this supposedly liberal bastion, which I don't think Cali is to be clear. Like I think Cali has a ton of issues that they hide behind being this liberal blue state. But even still, like Ohio, there's no, (laughs) like you're not, I was home last week and there were Trump signs kind of like everywhere. And uh, so, yeah, so I'm from Ohio. I, I'm from the Midwest. I wish people could see your face. I mean, the ones that listen to the podcast, because like your face did it all. You're just like, wow. <laughs> I'm just going to like answer that no. <laughs> I went to school in Indiana at Purdue University. And Indiana at the time had the number one, it was the, it was the state with the highest number of registered white supremacist groups. Wow. Yeah, people who were just like, Yes, us over here, we're white supremacists. <laughs> that reminds me of the, the presidential debate we just had, but I, I don't want to interrupt your train of thought. I'm that sure. Debate? Can we classify that as a debate? No, I, 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 was, I think I posted that I had lost some brain cells because yeah. I, I can't even, like, I can't even. <laughs> but, but yeah, I think all that to say, like, I don't think I had, I, I don't, I didn't have like this rosy view of America. Mm-hmm. And, when I was an undergrad, if I were going home or really anywhere outside of the university bubble, like we wouldn't stop at night. Like we wouldn't oh. stop until we got to our destination. And so I kind of saw the writing on the wall and then like, and then it just kind of just got progressively worse. And I think sometimes I still, I get a little surprised at how low the bottom can go and how there's really no bottom at this point, mm. this progressive freefall, but... <laughs> I think that's really interesting what you said about, you know, you kind of knowing because, you know, I came as an immigrant. So for me, I, I bought into the idea of the American dream, you know, and, and for the longest time, because in my pursuit of that American dream, I, I wasn't noticing anything at first because I was too busy trying to learn English and trying to do the things right. Mm-hmm. And I would had so much bought into it that I think it wasn't until I got into corporate and I started seeing things that a lot of those things start like those blindfolds started coming down, right? Like I would see for me like sexual harassment, I would see things that happened in corporate that I was like, and nobody's doing anything about this. And this is America and this is like the 2000s, you know, <laughs> like we can do better than this. So I think when you look at different industries in America and you start seeing that despite the fact that we're quote unquote, the best country in the world or the richest country in the world, we are still not as advanced or as enlightened as you would think, right? Like there's still a lot of things happening that you would not think and then that that people get away with that you would not think that would happen in the U.S. 
especially me coming here, like I would have never thought, right? Like you think of Latin America, like, oh, it's unsafe and this and that. And then something like George Floyd happens and it's like by the police, by the people that are supposed to protect. And it's like, what? How, tell me a little bit about like your thoughts about that. Yeah. I mean, so I mentioned I travel extensively. Um, Mm -hmm. One thing that I know is kind of the only times I feel like truly American is when I'm overseas, because that's really the only times where people typically see me first as an American Mm -hmm. and everything else. And that like, there was an article about that recently about expats. And like, it's kind of a, it's kind of consistent across the board, especially with black expats. But I would say with black, with black and brown expats, uh, American expats, you in America, are there great parts about it? Like, yes, I'm not going to sit here and say that, you know, I don't benefit from being an American citizen. Like, I don't benefit from having an American passport. But America has a long way to go and really reaching a place that is truly equitable, just and whole for all of its citizens and inhabitants residents all you know people who are just here visiting like and I say that to your point of George Floyd I think a lot because I worked in immigration Mm -hmm. in Mexico and because I have this huge context and traveling and living abroad and understanding to some extent how the experience of immigrants are very different than the experience of black and brown Americans who were born and raised in this context. 100%. And I think what you just said like resonates so much about like from an immigrant perspective, how you can come here and really buy into that ideal because you don't have that historical understanding or even like, even that like generational burden of like really coming up and like dealing with America's inequities. Mm -hmm. Uh, See it as just like, fresh start and you come from the context of maybe a political system or a social a security system that just is starkly much different like yes and so you see this like america does come off as very safe and sound and as if it is this great place of opportunities and there are opportunities but yes. that American journey that pull yourself up by the bootstraps like those American quote-unquote American values those are just straight up bullshit they're they're bullshit can you excel in America absolutely yes but are you going to do it alone no no one like and and I hate it when people are like you know I'm self-made but I also got a ten thousand dollar grant from my dad (laughs) well I think you're speaking to opportunity and I think you're right it's not that it's impossible to make it or to be successful or whatnot but it's easier for some people than it is for others. And I think that's what people need to understand that there are certain advantages. And and I felt myself some disadvantages, but like you said, the more that I looked in America and that I started becoming, I think, more immersed in the culture. Because at first it was like, okay, learn English, survive, make friends, whatever, right? But once you get to that point, I graduated school and, and now like I have more time to like really look around me. I have the capacity to start seeing that stuff. That's when you start like, okay, what's happening here? Or like when it hits you, right? Like for me, it was like, when, okay, now I have to go to college as a dreamer, right? Like it just hit me like small things like that, that I can sort of understand. But like you said, I didn't grow up in the context that you grew up in, right? So there are other challenges that I didn't have to experience. And I think too, something to your point is that when 
you know, George Floyd or all the things that we see in the news now is that these things have been happening forever. But it's just that some people now are becoming more aware because it was on video, because it became viral, because of social media. Mm-hmm, because there was nothing else to do because of COVID, because everyone was at uh-huh. home and had to engage. But like, it's been happening since since America's founding, and it's been happening to Black and Brown people, mm-hmm. uh, and, and it's astounding. Uh, and I, I'll get into. I try not to do this anymore because it's a waste of my time. Yeah, but I used to like get into like debates with people, and sometimes they would be immigrants who have this very rosy view of America because because that's their that's the content text that they are engaging with it, mm-hmm. or with white people who also have no context of racial discrimination because that's not their lived experiences mm-hmm. and so when you don't believe people and there it's not your lived experiences then mm-hmm. you say oh that's a lie mm-hmm. so um i remember i got into this like argument with this colombian guy uh, he's american but he was originally from colombia and so he had this very different perspective and he was and it was years ago so it was someone had someone else had just been murdered and I, honestly I, it's sad i can't remember who because there are literally so many murdered right. police officers and he's just like you know i just don't understand like people just need to do what they're told and it was kind of the same things you hear often right and i told him like you know this is like this is really cute that we're having this conversation and like you're looking at me this ivy league grad who's a diplomat and we're having like and we're both overseas and that's real mm-hmm. cute but also i've been like held up by the police on multiple occasions and the first time that happened i was like 12 or 13 and i, was I literally like, just got chills right now like i was literally 12 maybe 13 i can't remember if my birthday had come or not and i was like hanging out with friends in my neighborhood we were just literally hanging out cops pulled up no words no nothing no questions were asked they just said get on the ground face down and pointed their guns at us like guns drawn on the ground and we're literally a group of 12 13 year old kids children is this in ohio yeah and we were literally in front of our homes so i thought that our parents were going to come outside and be like what the hell's going on get up like you can't do this to children but no because again that generational trauma and the generational fear that so many parents especially black parents have that their children will be shot injured murdered by the police for whatever reason really forces them to comply comply with being dehumanized and watching their children be dehumanized because the primary goal is to get that child home safe and alive so i'm 12 thinking someone's gonna come to my rescue because there's this this group of scary adults with guns my parents are literally 10 feet away but nothing happens there there was no saving Mm -hmm. we had to wait till we were embarrassed and the cops were good and ready to be like oh this is a play gun or oh this isn't a real threat all right fine you guys can go home now and that was the first time that was not the last time and i've never broken the law i've never done all of these like things that people say you should like if you don't do this isn't gonna happen to me happen to you and so it's it's with that context when almost everyone in your family there are generations upon generations of firsthand stories mm-hmm. of a not just misconduct and abuse by police but mistreatment at work i don't know how many times i was told or it was inferred that i was in some place i got into some level of success and it was because i was black or i was a woman or it was you know <laughs> it's like black. the opposite of that <laughs> Like, those things, if anything, made you work harder. <laughs> wow. So I would say like being an American, 
as a person of color, as a black woman, it's a, it's rough. And so much of what I do now with SD Melanin and with Crate Agency and just the work we, I do just in my personal life is around creating experiences where black people can live more joyfully, can live more safely and can create a future that's written by us. Mm-hmm and not dictated by someone else. And then also creating more opportunities for there to be more, I think, solidarity and engagement across Mm -hmm. communities of color. I think our struggles are so aligned. And I think that our journeys, while they may be different, like we often are facing some of the same challenges or the root of those challenges are the same. And I think it's a missed opportunity when we do not form coalitions and we do not work together. Mm-hmm. I think it's so true. And kind of go back to what you said about that Colombian person. It's interesting because their reality was so different to the point of there's so much trauma in a different type, different type of trauma, but there's so much trauma about almost like the other side of things, right? Where now they come to America and America just seems like a hero, like a savior because they help them escape like the other trauma they've been through, right? And so it's really interesting. And I think this is why it's so important to understand history, to understand, you know, world history and the wars. And because something interesting I was thinking about the other day, and I would love to hear your thoughts on it, is the fact that I feel like we keep repeating history. And it's just all about power. When you go back, it's all about power by whoever is the more powerful at the time. Like we've had empires, even when you look at Spain, for example, they came, they, they colonized Latin America or Latin America, but they were before colonized by an empire too, you know, and they were for a time taken over and in their costumes and their land. So it's like, you, and then you go back to that and that empire was before, was under another empire. So it's like, it's crazy how obviously over hundreds and hundreds of years and thousands of years, we keep repeating history and we keep doing this to one another. We don't treat each other like we're, you know, human. We treat each other like I'm better than you. I want more power. And it's to me, the way that I see it is the power struggle. It's always about power. It's always about who controls the masses, who controls the money, who controls the who makes the decisions what are your thoughts on that yeah i agree i think when i when i think about that that question or that train of thought i think about who writes history mm-hmm. usually the victors and then i think about okay well who gets access to that who gets mm-hmm. who gets access to what information mm-hmm. uh, and usually very rarely in like a at least in a public school situation across like across the board no matter where we're what country we're talking about you're not going to get a very in-depth or robust understanding of history like real history yes so when i say study history for those listening out there i mean like go and find out your own sources and whatnot not the traditional school system because you're so right about that i agree with you and i think that plays into it right because for the bulk of a country's population there's no real understanding of what's happened in the past and how what you see today looks eerily similar to what we saw 50 years ago, 100 years ago, yes. 500 years ago, and how we can kind of tell where this path is going to lead us because we've been there before. Mm-hmm. When you don't know history, you don't know what to look for. And I think that, I mean, for me, that's one of the reasons I think we we repeat history. We're under-informed or we're misinformed. 
And especially in today's context, people are looking for information in 140 characters or less. Yeah. And they'll believe whatever they see. I think we listen to the same things we already believe in, right? We listen to people that we already agree with. I mean, certain people watch a certain news channel, other people watch a different news channel. And so they're always like this, there's always this confirmation bias where like, we're only fitting our minds what we already believe in. So then of course, we're going to be like, oh, I'm right because I, I listen to this and they said the same thing right so that's why it's so important to also listen to other sources and people that you don't agree with right and I think that's where you can start getting listen say to your story where it sheds a lot of light for me on that experience and obviously I can't experience what you already lived but at least I can understand it I have people from all over the spectrum I lived in Argentina Utah I have a lot of immigrants listening so I love to get into these conversations because it's really important to listen to other stories and to listen to people that are different from us it really is to me that That's where true learning comes from. And that's where true understanding comes from. And it astounds me when I meet people who like don't have friends from different backgrounds or don't have anyone rather in their network, whether you call it a friend, associate, that has a different story or experience than them. And that can be a socioeconomic experience. That could be a racial ethnic experience. That astounds me because I'm like, that's where you learn Mm -hmm. so much of life to me and so much about the real complexity and so much of the beauty that's out in the world. So I 100% agree. I think you have to seek out those stories, especially if you're in a case where you're like, I don't know anyone who I can ask for. Mm-hmm. Seek out podcasts like this. Seek out. Nowadays, there are tons of great resources where you can really listen and hear a perspective that's different than yours. And for me, like, I, I, it's not important that I change everyone's mind. It's just important that you have more understanding yeah. of self. That is different. As much as like, say, I haven't lived in your shoes or somebody else hasn't. When they listen, hey, I was a 12 year old and this happened to me. That's universal. And that's why I love storytelling. And that's why it's so important that we use our voice because everybody, no matter what country you're from, if you're a parent and you're listening and you're a 12 year old kid, that happened to them. Or if you you think back when you were a 12 year old kid and that happened to you, can you relate? You can. And I thank you for being vulnerable too and sharing that story because I think that's where we can start seeing the different perspective and saying okay well I don't agree with that I don't care who it is or where they're from I don't agree with that I've had conversations with people even about immigration and whatnot where like they they're so closed off but then when you start sharing the stories that's when they're like oh wow and there's people that no matter what stories you share they're still gonna believe what they believe and like you said it's not really our job to convince anyone but it's so brave of you to share and also it's brave and it's generous right? Because you are sharing your story, you're opening up, you're being vulnerable, and you don't have to. You could be minding your own business and and do your own thing. And I think there's a lot of education, creating the resources and the content and and putting it out there and sharing with people. And we have to understand that that's generosity too. And it takes time and it takes courage. I mean, it it does for sure. But for me, I think about how important it is to give back. And sometimes I don't think that I do enough or I don't give back enough. And I think that for me, one of the ways that I, I can do that or I can contribute. And I don't know, give back is kind of interesting. It kind of feels like, I don't, I don't know if I really like that. It's more like contributing to society. Mm-hmm. The impact. Yeah, I think, I, I really do think it's important that we all contribute. I don't necessarily share that story as often. I should share, share it more because I think less, I, I sometimes still think people are really like, oh, well, this wouldn't happen if, and I'm like, no, it just happens. It just I love happens. that I got like an exclusive. <laughs> 
Sometimes I have guests that come and like they said this story like 50 times to like publicly in podcasts and I'm like, oh, come on, give me something new. <laughs> so thank you. Sometimes it can feel very heavy. And then working in the space that kind of we overlap in in some ways and, and in the city, San Diego, that space can feel very heavy. Uh, and we kind of, we were on a conversation where we talked about that before and just how many no's you get and the reception that you can get and the ways in which people treat you still because of how you present. It's literally been happening to me all my life and it still astounds me because dollars are green no matter what the color of the hand that delivers them is. Like they're still green and good business is good business no matter what. But for me, that reaction or that kind of level of ignorance propels the work that I do mm-hmm. in all realms of my life because I unequivocally believe that we deserve, period. Mm-hmm. And so based on that belief, as long as I'm in a position to facilitate and help us create the things that we deserve, then I would do it because we deserve. It's important that you brought up kind of like the economy and the money because when we're talking about privilege and we're talking about advantages and disadvantages, that's one of the that I noticed is like, yes, our money is just as green as anybody else's money, right? Me as an immigrant, you, whoever, but at the same time, when it comes time to, you know, me as a consumer putting my dollars into somebody else's pocket, am I being mindful of where that money is going? To give you an example, because I don't like to name names of anybody small, but I feel comfortable about this brand because they're big enough. I don't buy from Starbucks anymore because it's like, why? There are so many local people of color, local coffee shops that are founded by people of color. So for me and and anyone listening, like it's so important that just as much as like, yes, we can take dollars from anybody or we putting our money back because I come from a corporate world. So corporations couldn't care less about people at all. Like the small business owners do to a different level, but big corporations like that, even Amazon, I mean, I shop on Amazon, but even Amazon is like, they don't, you know, it's, it's all, it's all about money. And so we got to be mindful of where the money's going. And I think that's another way that we can create impact and change because when we start empowering the small business owner, the the founder, that's a person of color. And and as they grow, they can start building their generational wealth and, and then they can start changing things too. We need to put people like you in more positions of power in positions where you can make more change so i think it's really important to like really have the conversations as an entrepreneur that you are too and and talk about these topics and we did have a conversation about that before that that was lovely so what are some of the challenges that you've noticed as an entrepreneur specifically i just want to quickly say that your point is so salient i really think that do like as a collective of people collective we bought into the convenience and the slightly lower prices that big corporations can offer and leverage because they have billions of dollars. And when something's less convenient, we have to do a little bit more more work or it's a little bit more expensive, then we we say, well, like, oh, well, like this can go further here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that that what that means is you can't want small minority business owners, but not support small minority business mm-hmm. owners. So I think that's a really important part and point. And I think we have to continue to just hold ourselves accountable and then share resources. I'm currently in Chicago and I'm like thinking about, I've been doing some of my shopping at this like local hardware store that's owned by this older black guy. Uh, And they sell toilet paper and some other things that I'm noticing. I'm like, all right, so what can I shift from the big grocery store to this store? But I do think it is, you have to be deliberate about it 
because mm-hmm. it's, it's, you're, it's not going to be as convenient as a one click ship in two days mm-hmm. and purchase mm-hmm. or like you said, Starbucks that are on every single corner, sometimes yeah. twice or one. Yeah, and like one block. I can see it at a Target and then it's in the corner of that same parking lot or something. Yeah, but yeah, no, that's a really great point. But to your question of what, what help did I need as an entrepreneur or what issues do I see? No, what challenges? Challenges. I think the biggest challenges that I see right now is the lack of support. Given the coronavirus, I'm really worried about how many small businesses will survive. Most of us, we face, you know, reduced capacities or reduced ability. And that that sustained level of reduction in profits or just ability to operate is really hard. And then you add on to the fact that the government's response hasn't necessarily been consistent. Mm-hmm. For SD Melanin, our overhead costs are pretty low. We still have costs, but they're not debilitating. Mm-hmm. And so almost a year before we'll have a real income generating event, I don't necessarily have to close my business down because mm-hmm. my low overhead at this point. Mm-hmm. And as being like a virtual company but not many if you have a brick and mortar like yourself you have fixed costs yeah that are much higher or you know you have staff that maybe you don't want to lay off I just really worry about the ways in which small businesses will be supported mm-hmm. like all those companies who are making millions who still got those PPP loans and things like that they'll be fine Mm-hmm. Like the Lakers is going to be fine. How they got a loan in the first place yeah, is insane. Uh-huh. It's interesting that you say that because I even saw in the news that American Airlines, I think, they laid off like, can't remember how many, like 100,000 employees or something. Can't remember. And they said that once they get help from the government funding then they'll they'll consider bringing them back right they have the leverage to do that and they already got funding yeah so i think it's a lot about the leverage right that these companies have because they're so big that you know they're lobbying they're you know they're they're buying really government responses that's the way politics work in a way and so and it's not it's not being um negative like it's just a fact it's just what it is right so for a company that's small small business i don't have a hundred thousand employees to say, oh, I'm gonna fire everyone if you don't give me money. And I wouldn't. I would have the, de- the human decency not to use that as leverage. But I think once you go corporate like that, there's so much at stake for these people that they, they kind of forget everything else, the human aspect of everything. And, and, and granted that there's a lot of things that I also understand that, you know, that we need to keep running, you know, certain things. We can be out of basic services and whatnot. But I definitely do think the small business owners are the hardest because for example, I can't go and like get on unemployment, you know, because I'm still working for my company and I'm working more now because I had to let go of some people. So it's like, I that, that doesn't help me. I'm not getting the big loans that the big companies are getting. I think there is a gap there for small business owners, which usually do tend to also be people of color. It's, uh, yeah, it's interesting. I could talk about that forever, but I'm not going to. Just, oh, yeah. I mean... It's just so true. But the crazy thing is the airline, they said after they got, I think it was like, it had to have been like at least a billion dollar bailout. They almost, almost immediately after they got the money, they said they sent many airlines sent emails to their employees saying like, you're good until October. And October was the date that they had to keep employees through October to qualify for, to get all this money as a grant. Maybe it wasn't a billion dollars, but it was a lot of money that the airlines got. Yeah. that they were able to get and you get free money and then as soon as as soon as you can legally 
fire people without losing that free money if you do it. Well, and also mind that like the executives of these companies are multimillionaires themselves, right? So how to me it would be common sense. Like I I have heard of other businesses locally even that, for example, women in tech, one of those companies, you know, where the founder was like, you know what, I have to let you go, but I'm gonna let you go in a way that you can file for unemployment and it's not like the human aspect of it, right? Where you have these big executives are, are like, why don't you take a pay cut? I mean, at this point, you'd be making multi-millions for so many years that if you said, hey, I'm just not going to make a salary this year, give that to the employees, right? Like keep them around. If they all like pulled money from that, they, they would easily make it go and be able to still hire those people and keep those retain those employees so again this goes back to like let's not forget the fact that as they're getting this aid they're still on their multi-million dollar salaries now i was just gonna say that will require some decency and interest outside of straight capitalism. There's a recent report that just came out that looked at what pandemic's impact has been to the economy. And it's really just made the richest people richer because they were able to leverage all of the value that came out of the pandemic, everyone else poor. You don't see them really pulling out from that abundance and saying, what can we do? How can we somehow help small business owners? I've seen a few big companies do that. I've seen a few big companies partner up with community organizations and whatnot and say hey we're gonna create a scholarship we're gonna create a grant so we're not gonna say that nobody's doing it but i don't see it way there at the top i don't see that happening too much so enough of it at the scale that it should be at and I think right. that's one thing. like if you are deriving an extra 30% of value in your company this year due to the pandemic mm-hmm. and you know that everyone else at the bottom has lost that value due to the pandemic there's a lot of things you can do and it's more than donating a million dollars a million dollars is nothing that's nothing that's that's like pocket change for literally it's nothing on, on a budget on a, like that's not even a worthwhile thing to talk about on your budget. Like I used to work for Procter & Gamble and we would have, like we wouldn't even look, something that was a million mm-hmm. wouldn't even worth, it's not worth a discussion. Yeah. So I don't know, but I think this is just a reminder that we are literally going to have to save ourselves because no one else is going to. And we got to get ourselves to the top. I think, I think when you bring people that have experienced a different life and they know what it's like to be in certain spots and then you are in a position to help, you're going to have hopefully a bigger inclination to do so because you've been there. And you know what it's like to be there. So that's why it's so important to continue to work. And, and this is a, this is the irony of it. It's like, we do have to work harder, right? Like we do have to like try harder, but then we can ideally create better impact. I want to talk to you because you are a community builder. So I do want to ask you, you're a community builder and you literally do have one of the most engaged communities, loving communities in San Diego, being here, seeing it. And I want to know for someone who's trying to create a community or find a community, do you have some nuggets to kind of move away from the politics? Because <laughs> do you have some nuggets for, for, you know, for people like us that are building communities? I would say be authentic. So I built this community off of a need. Focusing on a need or desire is really important because people can buy into that. And it, it was easier for me to engage with people and bring people into the fold because they bought into the idea of there needs to be more experiences for Black and Black and Brown communities, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in San Diego. And there needs to be more invested interest in that and creating those experiences. 
experiences. It's okay if you make mistakes. It's okay if you evolve, if things change. Going back to the be authentic, I think when we first started, we tried to really kind of replicate a tone and voice that was more masculine because Mm -hmm. a lot of the people that are in this space, especially on the entertainment side, are men and it's very male dominated. And it felt so fake. Like it it didn't feel true, but we thought like that's what like you needed to do because that's what people expected. Feels so much more authentic and so it feels better to really be speaking from a a tone and voice that is female dominated because we're all female team. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) So that feels great. I would also say treat the work like a business. And I say that because when you treat something like a business, you meet deadlines, you manage expectations, and you make sure your numbers work. One of the opportunity areas for community organizers, and I say that because I did community organizing around the 2020. Well, Barack Obama election in Ohio, community organizing in New York. I've done it in other places. And I think one of the the things that the space often lacks is there's so much heart in the work. Uh, There's so much love and passion for the work, but there maybe always isn't someone who's treating the work like a business so that it runs well. Mm -hmm. And so that you can minimize conflict as much as possible, that you can address issues that come up uh, so that you can create a strategic plan for longevity. I will say that's one of business background. And so I, I always approach everything I do from that perspective of like, okay, how do we make this function? Like I want things to fun- function well. I want logistics to be thought about. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't want to show up to some place and it's like a shit show. No one knows what they're doing. No one knows where they're going. And people are just like, oh, but it's okay. Like, I don't want to just be okay. I want to be great. And in order to do that, we have to have a plan of action. We have to think about our budget. We have to think about who's participating, who's not participating. What are some of the challenges we may face? Let's think about all of those things ahead of time. And, I, and so for me, I think I see a lot more businesses doing that exercise than people who are just, I'm just building this thing. Mm -hmm. If you just build this thing, it's just going to be this thing. Build something to last and you position it as such and you respect it as such, you'll have far better chances of it going the distance. I love it. I seriously, I was like, where were you when I was studying (laughs) the Femme Latinas? Because I made all the mistakes, all the things that you said. So I do want to talk to you, I kind of of thought about it when you were talking, building your team. How do you pick the people that you're going to work with? and that are going to be passionate about your mission? So that is, that's an issue I face. And I think I'm still learning in terms of building strong teams. I think in some ways I got really lucky. I started off with like a team of one and then briefly had a partner and then that didn't work out. And I went back to being a team of one. Can I ask, when you got a partner, was it because you thought it would be easier with a partner? So I thought it would be easier in the sense of like sharing the work and the responsibility. Mm -hmm. The partner that I had, like a great person, like super sweet. Uh, She just didn't have the expertise that I needed to like effectively partner. Mm -hmm. It would have been fine, like working up under Mm -hmm. me. But with a partner, I expect that you you have to come to the table with some kind of value add. Mm -hmm. And she just didn't have the level that I needed for the work. And so that's why we ultimately decided it didn't necessarily make sense because we were just at two different spaces and what we could provide to the partnership. So I started off and I had a group of volunteers. And again, I say, you know, if you can get volunteers who are going to be excited about your mission, do that because that helps, especially as you're starting to build, you keep your costs low um, and also 
maybe provide some value, like offer some benefits to the volunteers, the things that they want. And so I had these volunteers who would show up regularly. And then I started thinking like, okay, I'm at a point where I can actually pay someone to do this work. So I don't want to like, sure, it's great when people work for free, but Mm -hmm. I don't like working for free. So (laughs) I don't necessarily think at you know, other people should just be working for free forever. So I brought on some of the volunteers to be full-time members of our team. And I would say that volunteer period helped me to really vet because I'd worked with them. I'd seen the level of dedication, even for a volunteer experience. So it's easy for me to say, okay, even when there's nothing on the table, these people at least meet baseline expectations. I can count on them to show up when they say they're going to show up. They're excited about the work we do. So I would really encourage like a a vetting period or an internship or a volunteer period uh, where you get a chance to kind of work with someone and see how you flow, how you guys gel together rather, uh, and how they gel with the rest of the team. After that, we started bringing on interns and they would intern for a two to three month period. And then if it worked out, they would, we would bring them on to be full team members. And one of the resources that we've used to really help facilitate that, because again, I don't think people should have to work for free if there's a way to pay them. It's kind of, it's, it's a risky to like, if you don't have the budget and you're carving out a budget to pay someone uh, who maybe doesn't have the as much experience as you think they should have, or maybe you're unsure about, that's a risk involved. Well, there's a program in, in a, several different locations, but it's particularly it's in San Diego as well, it's called Tech Hire. Uh, and Tech Hire helps to fund an intern in certain categories. It's like a lot of tech management, mm-hmm. design, things like that. Yeah, Tech Hire is a great resource because they will fund up to two interns a year and they'll pay them, they'll pay the interns and like give them a kind of like a benefit package and you'll get 150 hours with each intern. So that's about two to two and a half to three months. Yeah. And so it helps. They're getting compensated for the work they're doing as well as they're getting experience. And you're getting the help you need and you're getting to kind of vet this person without having to necessarily spend the money. And it actually takes more hire new people too. So you want to ideally hire the right person in the beginning. So you're not like losing money that way. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much, Lauren. That was so helpful. I seriously, I'm going to check them out too. The tech hire. <laughs> I can send you their contact. Uh, I'll email you okay. all the POS contacts. Because it's, I mean, it's a great resource because you, you get That's real. Awesome. I'm excited. <laughs> so for the women listening, if you can just leave them with like one piece of advice, what would you say to them? A lesson, a life lesson. I will say appreciate and honor the waves that come in your life. I would say you don't have to act like the crashes are better than what they are. It's okay to be like, this is rough. This is tough. I need a day to sit here and do nothing. Or I need this hour to sit and be by myself. Cry, maybe not cry, take a walk. But it's okay to acknowledge when the wave is crashing down. And it's okay to celebrate when you're riding, when you are riding that. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for your time, for being here with us. I'm really excited. I can't wait to see you in person, but it was really good to see you through here. How can people find you? So you can find me, or rather the work (laughs) that I do. Uh, You can follow us on social media. Don't tell them your address. (laughs) (laughs) Follow us on social media. You can follow at SD 
Melanin. You can fo- also follow our consultant agency is at Rate Agency, C-R-A-T-E Agency. You can also find us in both of our websites. It's also CrateAgency.com or SDMelanin.com. And then I'm on social media at L-O-R-E-N underscore co. So at Lauren underscore co. I'm not super on like my personal Insta is kind of. Yeah, I didn't even know you had your personal one. I think I just found out like last month or something. Yeah. <laughs> I I am I, I think sometimes I get so inundated with like all of the other content that I'm working with that I'm like this personal Instagram is gonna give me anxiety. I get it, girl. I totally get it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much. I will share the links and thank you everyone for listening. Bessels. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Hey Dreamer podcast. And most importantly, thank you for showing up for yourself and your dreams. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to write a review and send me a screenshot of it to my DM at Jesse Medina Official so that I can post it and tag you on it. And remember, dream and create. Besos!